Hello, and welcome to In Search of Black Power. I am your host, Lawrence Grand Prix. In this month of Halloween, October, we wanted to do a movie review for you all. So, obviously, horror movies are going to be big this time of year, and no horror movie was more big this year than Jordan Peele's movie, Us. The complex but brilliant psychological thriller. Adelaide, the film's main character, reflects the core duality of loving her children, yet harboring a deep secret. At the end of the movie, it is revealed that, while it appears that Adelaide simply saw her doppelganger in the funhouse as a child, in reality the doppelganger grabbed her by the throat and dragged her into the underworld. After chaining her to a bed and stealing her Michael Jackson Thriller t-shirt, she returns to the surface and takes over her life. Being left in the underworld, the version of Adelaide from the above-ground world as a child turns into Red, the person who appears in the driveway with her message around why the Tethered have left our underground world and come above to end their oppression by severing the link between them and the above-ground world. In the final reveal, we learn that Adelaide and Red actually switched places the fateful day they met in the Hall of Mirrors. Adelaide, who was born in the underground, has been functioning as our protagonist in a way that underscores the arbitrariness of our social position. It suggests that each of us could have just as easily been a violent, languageless monster if we were thrown into a gross underworld instead of a series of good schools and qualified counselor's offices. It also makes us ask the question, is Red even the bad guy? Does she deserve her original place at the expense of someone else? The film forces us to confront the short-sightedness of many prejudices and us-versus-them mentalities. The audience has given several clues that this might be coming. Adelaide wears a t-shirt from Michael Jackson's album, Thriller, the famous music video for which ends with a seemingly normal Michael Jackson being revealed to actually be the monster. The fact that her snaps to the well-known rap song, I Got Five On It, are offbeat that she cries when Red tells her story of her oppression, a sign of her guilt over what she did dragging her other into the underworld, and that her white sweatshirt gradually turns red from bloodstains, from Adelaide's gradually more murderous behavior during the film, are all clues to the audience that she may actually be from the tether world. Merely off the suspicion that Josh is a doppelganger, she stabs him in the head with a fire poker. She gruesomely kills one of Josh and Kitty's twin girls, with Jason watching. And at the film's dramatic apex, she kills Red in a gruesome fashion, strangling her and breaking her neck after stabbing her. Adelaide has moved on up, both literally coming to the surface world and in the black vernacular use of the term. She's managed to leave behind the suffering which she was birthed into and achieved a level of material security 
and even apparent affluence. It's not exactly cheap to be able to vacation anywhere near Santa Cruz. Her ascendance comes with the corresponding set of middle class values. While it's clearly shown that she is connected to Red and can likely sense her intentions, that her first response is to call the police when the Red family shows up is important. This mirrors upper class blacks' response to lower class blacks, a tendency consistently referred to in James Foreman's book. Rather than wanting to confront Red and take accountability for what she did, she seeks to deploy the power of the state to protect her. When Adelaide hears that the cops are 15 minutes away, she and Gabe act as if this is a surprising or unacceptable reality. This will feel odd to many black working class or black poor viewers of the film. Many of the neighborhoods the black working class and poor live in experience the duality of being over-policed for petty offenses like marijuana possession. Yet when cops may be needed to protect the community, they often take far longer than 15 minutes to respond. To see a 15 minute response time as unacceptable shows a level of expectation around policing that is explained by Foreman it's more typical of the black middle or black upper class. Foreman argues that despite the police clearly being a threat to poor black communities, the black middle class and elites saw no other solution to crime and began to see all investment in policing as good because it showed that the state respected them enough to invest money for services in their community, even if those quote-unquote services caused havoc for poor black people. Peel brilliantly creates duality between Adelaide's desire for police protection and her actions of kidnapping her double and putting her in the tethered world. Remember, the police, when called, are 15 minutes away. The same amount of time it took for the young Adelaide from the shadow world to kidnap her double, handcuff her to the bay in the underground, steal her shirt and ascend to the surface. Adelaide operates a lot like a cop in this scenario. And this duality clearly creates a level of personal responsibility on her part. By willing to send someone to the tethered realm, by leaving them in the underworld without seeming to even make any inquiry into who built it, why they built it, and how she could return to liberate those she left behind, Adelaide reveals herself to be akin to those who created the tethered realm in the first place, willing to allow people to suffer so that she could live a comfortable life. This story will appear familiar to anyone who is versed in narratives of black folks who, quote-unquote, move on up, make it out of the inner city or prison. Adelaide can be read as an allegory for this ultimate version of the black successful person who is uninterested in improving the conditions of the black masses. The type of folks who say things like, I made it out, so they need to figure it out for themselves. However, this relative privilege comes at a cost for Adelaide. First, her relationship with her husband seems to mirror the coldness shown between her parents in the flashback when she was a child. In the flashback sequences in the film, Adelaide's parents are struggling to deal with the fact that after disappearing for 15 minutes on the boardwalk, Adelaide is no longer speaking. This makes sense, given that the child they think they have is not the same child, that she's actually coming from the underground world where the tethered do not speak. Her parents seem to hold different views of the severity of their daughter's condition and seem to even be an element of blame laid at the feet of the father 
who complains about being consistently accused of doing something wrong. When the father offers the wife his hand, she refuses it, an act which would later be mimicked by Adelaide and Gabe, her husband. When Adelaide steps out of the car to confront the doppelganger version of her son, who Red has named Pluto. Note, Pluto is the name of the Roman god of the underworld. Gabe leans in, as if to offer her affection, and she pulls away and withdraws. But it is in Adelaide's relationship with her son, Jason, where the duality of those with privilege and those without it is most clearly seen. And the deepest pain in the film can be registered. Jason shows a deep connection to the tethered world. At the beach, he digs a tunnel, signifying his understanding that there is a subterranean world nearby. At the beach, he wanders off, and after seeing the film's first doppelganger, he draws a picture of him when he returns to the vacation home. He and his doppelganger, Pluto, are similar. Both are awkward. Pluto physically crawling around like an animal, and Jason socially. And both love fire. So the film, despite the violence, Jason is mostly cool and calm in his facial expressions, often wearing a monster mask which makes him seem inhuman. While the other family members fight their doppelgangers, Jason essentially plays with his, revealing he has the ability to still be tethered with him and control his movements before trapping him in the closet. This is something that black middle-class families might see as familiar. While class stratifications between black families make relationships between adults hard, at younger ages, there can often be class mixing between different parts of the family without nearly as much friction. Whether poor or rich, kids tend to be kids, getting into mischief and often pushing boundaries. That both Jason and Pluto love fire seem to be an allusion to this dynamic, as how young kids play with fire, in terms of risky behavior, crosses class boundaries. When Pluto's face is revealed to be horribly burned, the meaning of Pio's juxtaposition between Jason and Pluto becomes clear. While middle-class kids can play with fire, and it can be seen as cute, eccentric, or them going through a phase, lower-class black kids are burned, seen as dangerous and threats, and often sent to jail. Pluto runs on all fours like a wild animal, and even purrs like a cat at the foot of his mother, Red. He is an archetypical super predator the sort of hyper-dangerous black youth whites warned would swarm out of the black community in the 80s and 90s. While it's forming rights, the opposite actually happened, and crime rates dropped in the 90s. The fear of black youth never faded. Similarly, Pluto burns a car to stop the Wilsons escaping in an SUV, and the image of kids in masks burning cars reminds me of the Baltimore Uprising where dozens of cars were torched, mostly by kids in masks, protesting police brutality. Given that the doppelgangers are fighting a form of oppression, which I argue is akin to the prison industrial complex, it's possible that this similarity is intentional on the part of Jordan Peele. Pluto in the current time of a film, appears to be around the same age that Adelaide was when she ran from the tethered world, creating a level of solidarity and connection between 
Adelaide, and Pluto, which belies the fact that Adelaide has severed her connection from the world from which she escaped. Pluto dies, with Adelaide trying to take his hand, another potential connection for Adelaide severed. It is at this moment where Red kidnaps Jason and takes him back to the tethered world, setting up the climatic final battle between Red and Adelaide. When Adelaide emerges victorious, covered with blood and wild-eyed, Jason barely recognizes her, and despite being embraced by Adelaide, he appears apprehensive and, for the first time in the film, begins to cry. Finally, in the film's closing moments, where Adelaide's status as a former member of the tethered world is revealed, it is Jason who stares at her with a look which could only be described by me as accusatory, perhaps because Jason senses the falseness. Behind Adelaide's smile, he puts back on his monster mask. In this moment, Peel reveals the ultimate cost of Adelaide's deception. The fracturing of the relationship with her son and the transmission of trauma down yet another generation. Ultimately, us is a challenge to the audience to look at themselves and find their culpability for oppression in the world. Honestly, this film would be easier for a black middle class audience to interpret if the Wilson family were light-skinned and framed as having Ivy League educations. However, this would absolve the audience of culpability, making the Wilson sins the province of your quote-unquote bougie aunt or some self-hating black person, and not forcing the audience to see the contribution everyday middle-class or upper-middle-class aspiring middle-class black people make to systems of oppression. After all, James Foreman's book reveals that it was not just the black upper classes who were arguing for increased policing, but black homeowners and community members who were decidedly middle and working class as well. The book focuses on the enforcement of drug laws in D.C., so it is literally people like Gabe who helped construct the system of mass incarceration, middle-class Howard University graduates who saw open-air drug markets even for relatively innocuous drugs like marijuana, as an affront to their notions of upward mobility and as a bastion of potential black deviants. Today, as in the 80s and 90s, middle-class black politicians and their constituents continue to enforce tough-on-crime laws and increase policing in the name of community protection and fear, seemingly unaware that these policies create a literal land of horrors that is our criminal justice system. Some of them even say, I was in jail once, and I made it out, so they should be fine, reflecting Adelaide's attitude toward the tethered. This movie attempts to expose the hypocrisy of the type of people who might sing along with NWA when they say, fuck the police, coming straight from the underground. A song that the film, of course, uses, and this is not a coincidence. Yet support a politician when they call for increased investment in policing because they fear their property values may decline without this policing. The audience is challenged to recognize the person they rooted for might actually be the bad guy, or in this case, the bad gal, the whole time. P. 
Peace, everybody. My name is Lady Breon. I'm the cultural curator at Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. And I came to this organization because I really wanted to have an impact on Baltimore, specifically Black Baltimore. And as an artist and curator, I recognize that the lofty ideas of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle is often missed by, you know, your average day folks who don't speak that really highly intellectual scholarly language. So I use my art and my advocacy to reach those people. And currently, I'm working to create a Black Arts District in West Baltimore and your money as a sustainer can help not only support this podcast, but to support that work in West Baltimore. So please give $2, give $10, give $15 a month to help support the efforts of the Black Arts District, this podcast, and the general work of Leaders of a Beautiful Struggle. After all, In the era of being quote-unquote woke, why are so many people seemingly so easy to dismiss a violent uprising of people who, through Red's explanation relatively early in the movie, are literally framed as slaves in the tethered world? What is Red's rebellion other than the sort of revolt of the oppressed none other than Tupac Shakur theorized about, where upon realizing you are hungry and locked out of a room full of resources, you over time realize that it's only through violent action that you can meet your needs. If, if I know that in this hotel room they have food every day and I'm knocked on the door every day to eat and they tell and they open the door, let me see the, the party, let me see like them throwing salami all over the I mean just like throwing food around where they're telling me there's no food in there. You know what I'm saying? Every day. I'm standing outside trying to sing my way in. You know what I'm saying? We are hungry, please let us in. We are hungry, please let us in. After about a week, that song is going to change the we hungry, we need some food. After two, three weeks, it's like, you know, give me all the food, breaking out the door. And after a year, you just like, you know what I'm saying? I'm picking the lock, coming through the door, blasting. You know what I'm saying? It's like you hungry, you reached your level, you don't want any more. We asked 10 years ago. We was asking with the Panthers. We was asking with them, you know, the civil rights movement. We was asking, you know. Now, now those people that were asking, they're all dead and in jail. So now, what do you think we're going to do? Ask? From a political standpoint, in my personal opinion, the film's biggest limitation, though not a surprising one, is that Peel portrays the uprising as universal, rather than the revolt of the explicitly black masses. The film could be an almost direct allusion to a violent vision of the Marxist historical materialist process, with a global proletariat rising up and overthrowing their capitalist masters. In the opening text, which refers to the unused subway tunnels, mine shafts, and sewers which were laid underground, it is the dirty work of those who dug these tunnels, maintained our sewers, and mined precious metals used in our contemporary electronics, which make modern life possible. That the tethered wear red, a globally recognized color of the Marxist revolution, perhaps isn't a coincidence. That the tethered are shown, black, white, and brown, as all struggling in the underworld together, shows a level of cross-racial solidarity which challenges the notions that the film is simply an allusion to racism, but seeks to make a point about broader levels of class oppression. That the affluent white family in the film is also killed by their doppelgangers is important both to belie any potential ability for the film to be seen as simply a race ride, and to show that the white working class will also seek to potentially 
destroy their own white middle-class enemies in a future violent proletariat uprising. Many of the films Peel uses as the background for us draw on fears of the Soviet Union in the 80s and the nuclear fallout caused by weapons testing. As the foundation of the creation of the monsters in many of the films that Us is alluding to. Similar to these classic films, one can argue that it is fear of the other, particularly an other which threatens your economic and material status, which leads to the creation of monsters. The film's final scene, with tethered holding hands, is an allusion to the 1986 Hands Across America action against homelessness. It is a depiction of global cross racial solidarity of the oppressed rarely seen in American cinema. But nowhere does the film explore the duality of the American dream more than its most enduring metaphor, the Hands Across America benefit of 1986. This event, now a cultural punchline, was initially seen as an exciting means of raising awareness about poverty. Six million people, including some of the leading names in rock and roll, will join hands on May 25th to fight hunger in the United States. Only about half of the $30 million raised actually made it to people in need with the rest covering operational costs. Of course, Hands Across America existed in a wave of feel-good sentiment about fighting poverty. And while I'm not here to shit on people donating money to the less fortunate, the idea that donating 10 bucks and holding hands for a few minutes can solve widespread poverty is a little naive. A way for the Wilsons or the Tylers of the world to feel good about themselves while so many have so little. Red reimagines the spectacle as a violent and radical act of change. The dream of Hands Across America is perversely realized when the have-nots trade places with the haves. While the death of the white family by their doppelgangers has value in showing that this isn't just black people on screen being violent, and that the white poor are oppressed too. As I wrote in the book, The Black Book, Reflections from the Baltimore Grassroots, the white working class has historically sided with their class oppressors, the white elite, rather than working with black poor. In it, I write, Quote, Charles Mills postulated that even in instances where it is materially beneficial for whites to align with blacks, the psychological attachment to whiteness would be seen as more valuable. And rich state resistance to the Affordable Care Act proves empirically that this theory has value. Democrats and progressives often wonder why poor white Republican voters, quote unquote, vote against their self-interest. An understanding of anti-blackness reveals that these voters are actually not voting against their self-interest, as the dominant progressive liberal framework fails to see that these interests are not just economic, but largely, and sometimes even predominantly, racial. That people would adopt a view of cross-racial solidarity is understandable. This is, after all, still a Hollywood film. It's easier to get a film made and get white viewers to view it if there is a level of racial unity portrayed even if that unity is murderous solidarity. The film also has clearly religious overtones. Not only are the tethered killing people with red robes and golden scissors, note the scissor is a weapon with two identical parts, an allusion to the film's overarching narrative of duality. They seem to be not just killing people, but sacrificing them in an almost religious manner. With the exception of Red, the given names to the doppelgangers for Lupita Nyong'o's character, Adelaide, the tethered speak only in primal grunts and howls, potentially an allusion to some religious forms of worship where people speak in tongues. 
The death of the affluent white family in the film is especially important to understand this narrative. As the character played by the actress Elizabeth Moss, Kitty Taylor, an Asian woman who tries to drown her regrets in wine and plastic surgery, bleeds out. She calls out not to God, but to her smart speaker, asking it to call the police. This scene shows how the police have replaced God as a metaphysical solution to our problems. Supporting the point that theorists of class struggle have repeatedly made that the police serve a key role, not in creating safety, but in securing the interest of capital against exactly these sorts of revolts. That the computer assistant, ironically named Ophelia, note this is derived from the Greek word Ophelia, meaning help, helper, computer assistant, you get the illusion, fails to call the police, but instead plays the classic NWA song, Fuck the Police, shows Peel's attempt to show to his audience that these new gods of technology will not save them. It, in fact, should be seen as an allusion to the Bible verse, which is repeated throughout the film, Jeremiah 11.11. Though Kitty calls out to God of technology, and even her murderers, holding out her hands to Tex, the murderous doppelganger of her husband Josh, they will not respond or hearken back to thee, as the Bible verse Jeremiah 11.11 puts it. That the prophet Jeremiah is lambasting the Israelites for worshiping idols and losing faith in God, so too is Peel attempting to make a larger point about contemporary society worshiping the false idols of money, technology, and policing. And for their efforts, they are likely to end in ruin. This theme is underscored by the naming of the character Gabriel, who in the Bible is an archangel sent to foretell the birth of a savior, and by naming his doppelganger Abraham, the prophet of the Old Testament, which tells of God's violent judgment upon the wicked. Taken together, these show the depths of the religious overtones of the film, hearkening back to biblical notions of judgment and damnation. These religious interpretations are not incongruous with a black elitist interpretation of the film. These two interpretations may actually be able to be reconciled, as many of the conservative forces pushing for tough-on-crime legislation were black churches that encouraged the worship of false idols, of upper mobility and policing, rather than the biblical teaching of, let he use without sin, cast the first stone. The practice application of black religion has a long history, but has increasingly fallen to the wayside in favor of the prosperity gospel of mega-pastors and the legacy of liberation theology has increasingly been lost. The film can be seen as a reassertion of the biblical notion of the meek inheriting the earth, and thus in line with the interpretation of a critique of the hypocrisy of the aspirational elites. While polarizing, confusing, and often seemingly all over the place, I think the film is a masterpiece. It challenges the audience to look inward and confront the limitations of their political ideologies. If Hands Across America represented a nostalgic innocence by showing a belief that all we need to do is unify and hold hands to solve oppression, then Ridd's revolt is simply the logic of Hands Across America taken to its logical, bloody conclusion. Eliminate the privileged classes via complete and unbreakable solidarity of the oppressed. The questions us ask us to ponder are troubling. But important, have we as a black community realized that those of us behind bars 
like the tethered, literally are the same as those outside of prison. And the only reason we have a hard time seeing this is because we live in a system that pits the black middle class and elite against the black poor. Finally, as much as people these days claim to have solidarity with the oppressed, have we as a society taken in one of the fundamental points shown by Adelaide's revolution, that us and them are merely a product of circumstance and conditions, and with the right conditions, or in this case, I suppose the wrong conditions, anyone could turn into a red or a Pluto. While we are unlikely to face a bloody, broad-scale, race-slash-class revolt in America soon, us forces the audience to be honest with itself in asking, if the revolt were to break out, whose side would you really be on? While the tethered and us don't speak, which is a reflection of society's inability to hear the voices of the oppressed, if we in the real world were to listen, we may just hear that the solution the black poor are screaming for isn't deeper exposure to the false idols of capitalism and technology, but the resources and space to build their own solution to their own problems. Thank you for listening. That concludes our review of Jordan Peele's Us, a very, very important film that we especially want to talk about now in the context of the holiday, Halloween. We hope you all have a good holiday. We do want to talk about some of the political implications of the film, as we talked about the character Jason being a young black man trying to find his way in this incredible world that Jordan Peele creates. On our website, we're taking up Similar questions in the real world. How do we produce solutions for young people to have the services they need to be able to develop themselves? And we actually have a comprehensive report that we call a black paper up on our website detailing in depth our analysis of the social service sector in Baltimore and how to actually produce racial justice in that sector. So that's the goal of New Timbuktu, to take this academic analysis and to infuse it with real life political action. So again, you can read that paper and our full review of us and lots of other things on our website, newtimbuktu.com. And you can find out more about the institution bringing you all this dope analysis. Lead yourself a beautiful struggle at lbsbaltimore.com. So again, thank you. And please join us next time where we go in search of Black Power. <laughs>